On today's Winning Cures Everything, Pac-12 releases a joint statement. Oklahoma and Texas are joining the SEC a year early, so what's next for the SEC and the Big 12? Is Notre Dame about to hire an OC? We've got ACC revenue distribution talk and more. Can you believe it? It's football. I've been watching it for 40 years. Are you kidding me? You're listening to Winning Cures Everything. Game day, baby. Wake up or get out. Here's your host. A confident young man. A superb athlete. Gary Seegers. Welcome back to Winning Cures Everything, where we talk college football news and rumors all year round. I'm Gary Seegers. You can follow me on Twitter at GaryWCE, and this is the Monday, February 13th edition of the show. It's season 8, episode 12. If, of course, you keep up with that kind of thing. And if you're watching on YouTube, please go ahead and hit that like button. And whether you are watching or listening, hit subscribe so you never miss the latest tales from the college football universe. Congrats, of course, to the Kansas City Chiefs for winning Super Bowl 57. Don't blame the refs, Eagles fans. Blame that defensive performance in the second half. Yeesh. I mean, it was all just the game was great, right? Um also, like, I got to tell you, I, I want whatever it was that they gave old Patty Mahomes at halftime to make him not be able to uh, even feel his ankle in that second half. Uh, that dude was unbelievable, just absolutely insane. Uh, on top of that, my wife and I, we talked for a long while about, of all things, Rihanna's halftime show. I'm curious your thoughts. Toss them in the comments there. Uh, apparently, she's pregnant again, for one. Uh, I, I don't really keep up with pop culture a whole lot, so I didn't realize that, you know, one, that I knew so many of her songs, but also uh, I had felt like she would, had been pregnant for like over a year at this point, <laughs> but apparently she had a child last year and now she's having another one. So uh, my wife told me about her net worth, which is worth $1.4 billion with a B. Like she co-owns a makeup line called Fenty Beauty. Uh, it's with like... LVMH, I believe it's like Louis Vuitton and one. I, I had never had a clue about all this. I, I knew that she was bad girl Riri. I knew that, uh, but that was about it. Uh, anyway, enough about all this. If you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and toss in where you're watching from in the comments or the chat. Now, as you know by now, uh, I ask you all to do that because I'm nosy about where you guys are consuming the show. Of course, I appreciate you for watching uh, and for sharing the show, telling your friends about it. And of course... I appreciate you listeners as well. Our goal is to hit 10,000 subscribers by the end of the 2023 football season, which we are well on the way now that we're about to hit 8,200 subscribers on the channel. And I say we because, honestly, you guys are very much a part of this thing. It, it's a community. Every like, every share, every subscribe helps out so much. Just so much. Also, uh, what all that stuff does for the YouTube channel, podcast reviews, subscribes at Apple and Spotify, do the same thing over there. So, like, they, they push out the show more when you subscribe and when you give it a nice review. So thank you if you've already done that. If you haven't, what are you waiting for? As far as YouTube goes, I'm still seeing like 80% of the viewers on every video are not subscribed. So if you are one of those that's watching this one, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button, become a part of this wonderful WCE community. Uh, as most of you know, I am an Alabama fan, but that is not exclusive to football. A lot of my family hold degrees from Tuscaloosa. So I was raised up to support the Tide in everything, every sport. And it has been tough sledding as a Bama basketball fan for a lot of years. So when Alabama was announced today as the number one team in the AP basketball poll, 
uh, I immediately had flashbacks of the last time that they reached number one. It was uh, December of 2002, and it was just a couple of days before they went and lost at Utah. Uh, when the Utes had Rick Majerus as their head coach. Now, after that, Mark Godfrey led the Tide out of the rankings. So they went number one in the polls uh, to out of the rankings within like five or six weeks. It was impressive stuff. Now, I'm going to manifest this on the show, okay? This season will not end like that one did. That, that one ended uh, with a loss to Indiana in the first round of the NCAA tournament. <laughs> I mean, that team ended up 17-12. and 12. Very few uh, number one teams end up 17-12, and 12. but I, I got a feeling this one's going to be better. No first-round exit for Alabama this year. I am a Nate Oates believer, but alas, uh, y'all ain't here for college basketball. This is College Football Show. We got a lot to dive into. There is a lot on the docket. Let's go on and get to it. We will start off with this here. Right before I started recording, the Pac-12 schools released a joint statement, and that statement says... The 10 Pac-12 universities look forward to consummating successful media rights deal or deals in the very near future. Based upon positive conversations with multiple potential media rights partners over the past few weeks, we remain highly confident in our future growth and success as a conference and united in our commitment to one another. Now, I obviously have not had a lot of time to really dive into this or or to reach out to anybody to hear their thoughts, uh, but this doesn't feel real. Like, it's obviously a response to the Big 12 and their aggressive stance on expansion. Uh, the statement says, we remain highly confident in our future growth and success as a conference and united in our commitment to one another. Now, we're now into what, like the fifth or sixth month with no TV deal? Uh, the Big 12, who wasn't supposed to come up until a year after you guys, has already gotten their thing done. What would be considered a successful media rights deal at this point? And my biggest question out of this is, who are the uh, multiple potential media rights partners? That's that's what I would like to know. This feels like the conference felt a little bit embarrassed by what has in, uh, transpired over the last couple of weeks. You know, they had leaks coming from inside the house. Uh, they They are trying to put this thing to bed. Now, I don't know that this accomplishes that, but yeah, who knows? I mean, maybe they sign a deal with ESPN for a big game of the week, and they, they bring in all that streaming money from Apple and Amazon both. I mean, who knows at this point? So we'll we'll see what ends up happening out of this, but whew, uh, I don't think that that accomplished what they were hoping that it would. <laughs> but I, again, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Since we last spoke, it was announced that Oklahoma and Texas will be leaving the Big 12 a year early and heading to the SEC for the 2024 football season. Now, in order to get this done, there was a lot that had to take place. Uh, The Sooners and the Longhorns were set to join the SEC in time for the 2025 season uh, because the Big 12, their media rights contract expires after the uh, 2024 season. Uh, But the Big 12 and the schools agreed to go ahead and get this thing done early. Texas and Oklahoma will owe a combined $100 million to the Big 12, a large portion of which will go to the eight legacy universities to help with the expected decrease in 2024 revenue due to the loss of those two schools. Uh, But we knew that the Big 12 and the SEC wanted to go ahead and get this done uh, a while back. Uh, Now, the question, of course, is why were they not able to get it done before now? Uh, The answer to that is media partners. Like, and, and they will all say, yeah, it's not that, it's, you know, this and that, whatever. It's media partners. That's the answer. Fox would basically be losing Oklahoma and Texas games 
to ESPN in that season. Now, those are huge draws for Fox. So how are they going to be able to get Fox to agree to this? Well, Pete Thamel, ESPN Insider, according to his Twitter, he said sources tell him a key part of the deal to let OU and Texas out of Big 12 early was a game flip of a non-conference matchup between Michigan and Texas. And, and the way that they got that fixed is Texas will now visit Michigan in 2024 in, uh, in Ann Arbor, and Michigan will return the game to Austin in 2027. They had been scheduled the opposite. So we can pretty much guarantee Michigan versus Texas will be on Fox early in 2024, uh, which should be an absolutely massive game. Uh, two of the biggest fan bases in the country for a matchup that's only been played once. It was a 38-37 to Texas win in the 2005 Rose Bowl. Uh, Ross Dellinger also stated in his piece over at Sports Illustrated, uh, details of any Fox and ESPN agreement were unclear, but Fox is expected to receive additional inventory or compensation for the loss of the two schools in 2024. So apparently, Fox was looking for a multi-million dollar financial package and or additional inventory. Again, nothing has been announced. Uh, no, I'll say this. An option was that Fox would get some of the ESPN-owned games in 2024. Is that going to be playoff games? Is that going to be some of these SEC games or some of these Oklahoma-Texas games? We'll, we'll see what ends up happening regarding Fox possibly broadcasting an SEC game or games uh, during that 2024 season. But that, that's what we're looking at here. Uh, let me go on and tell you this. Winning Cures Everything is brought to you by BetUS. Uh, they've got fast payouts, fantastic customer service, a myriad of options to bet on, and, of course, an easy-to-use layout. That's the most important thing, right? Uh, it's easy to see why it's been America's favorite online sportsbook for nearly 30 years. And right now, you can wager with a $50 free play with no deposit required just by signing up using the link in the description. And just in time for the for March Madness, right? Like, we all like to bet on the NCAA basketball tournament. Go ahead, take advantage of the deal, get signed up over at BetUS where the game begins. The link is down in the description. Get signed up. Do yourself that favor. Let's talk about changes. Looks like things are pretty much set going forward outside of potential Big 12 expansion, which we're going to hit on in just a minute. But let's talk about the 2024 college football season. It appears it's going to look like this. Oklahoma and Texas will be competing in the 16-team SEC. USC and UCLA will be competing in the 16-team Big 10. And the Big 12 will be at, surprise, 12 teams. It's been a long time since they've been at 12 teams. Uh, they have BYU, Houston, UCF, and Cincinnati joining the, quote, legacy eight remaining teams. Uh, Conference USA will be up to 10 teams at that point as Kennesaw State is expected to join that season. The Sun Belt will be at 14 teams. Now, the question is, who knows what to expect with the Pac-12, the AAC, and the Mountain West Conference right now, depending on Pac-12 expansion or implosion, I guess. Uh, the big one, of course, the biggest change will be the college football playoff will be expanding to 12 teams. Six highest-ranked conference champions, which guarantees a G5 in there, with the top four conference champs getting a first-round bye, and then you will have six other wild-card spots. Yes, it feels like a little bit of finality, but this sport's instability over the past two seasons has been nuts. So, really, who knows what to expect by that point? 2024 seems like a very long time away, uh, and yet... It, it's only about 18 months at this point. So who knows what is going to happen in between now and then. But man, uh, I, I think we're finally getting to a point where, where everything's kind of leveled out, I think. So we'll, we'll see. We will 
see on that. Uh, so the finality of the 16-team SEC is coming to fruition in the 2024 season, as we just mentioned, but there is still the matter of figuring out the conference schedule. Now, currently, the SEC plays eight conference games per season with four non-conference games. Uh, the current SEC divisions are set up with seven teams. Each team plays six division opponents, along with one permanent and one rotating cross-division opponent, uh, which is why you have situations like Missouri only playing at Auburn once every 12 years, like they did you know, this past season or the fact that Georgia has yet to play in College Station against Texas A&M. Now, ESPN and Disney did not uh, like that, especially with Oklahoma and Texas coming in. Uh, you know, if you if you stick with divisions, uh, you stick to an eight-game schedule, you either lose traditional cross-division rivals, uh, or you only have one rotating opponent, so you don't get, you know, a Florida versus Oklahoma or a Texas versus Georgia matchup, except maybe once every seven years. And it could be 14 years between trips to those opposing stadiums. So the TV partners want to see more matchups more often, right? SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey stated, uh, with the prominence of our universities, the strength of our football programs, the visibility of our teams, we should be rotating our teams through the schedule more frequently. And he's not wrong. Sankey stated that the SEC is focused on a single division model, which means uh, the two best teams, based on conference record, not division winners, are going to play in the conference championship game every year. Now, he also mentioned this. Uh, he said, we've been intentional about discussing our ability to have annual rivalries played or rivalries played every other year. Uh, we haven't arrived at a destination between eight or nine games. The number of games will facilitate the number of annual games that take place. So, is it an eight-game schedule or is it going to be a nine-game schedule going forward? That's the question everybody, uh, everybody wants to know. Eight games gives you one permanent opponent with seven rotating opponents, which means every school in the SEC will play every other school, both home and away, every four years. Uh, but with only one permanent rival, we either won't get uh, Alabama-Auburn or Alabama-Tennessee every year, or we don't get Texas-Oklahoma or Texas-Texas A&M every year. Georgia versus Florida or Georgia versus Auburn, you, you get the point, right? There's a lot of examples here for teams that have multiple yearly rivals. Uh, the other option is to move to a nine-game conference schedule. Uh, which would give you three permanent opponents and six rotating. Again, every school plays every other school, home and away, every four years. Uh, Nine-game schedule seems to be the best option, right? More traditional rivalries are protected every year, etc. But there are three issues with that, and we're going to dive into them right here. First, uh, the weaker teams in the league, and no offense to any of these teams that I'm going to name, but the Vanderbilts, the Kentuckys, the Mississippi States, etc. And it can be any team in any season, as evidenced by you know Auburn and A&M not making bowls last year. But only having three non-conference games each season makes it more difficult to make it to a bowl game. Now, there are contract incentives for coaches, uh, additional practices for players, and, and more that are tied into bowl game appearances. It's easier to get six wins with three cupcake non-conference games than with only two, which will be the case since all SEC members have agreed to play at least one P5 non-conference game each season. Now, second, there's the fact that with eight conference games, you are guaranteed four home games and four away games, which means you can schedule up to four non-conference games in those seasons. In some seasons, you would be guaranteed five away games every other year. Schools can earn quite a bit of revenue from home football games, even if it's against FCS competition. So giving away home games has to be worth it uh, to some of the bigger schools, for sure. That leads us to number three. The current ESPN contract is only for eight conference games. That's what ESPN agreed to. 
Now, could the SEC convince ESPN to give them more money for eight additional conference games? Possibly. Uh, but how much more? If ESPN is not willing to pay more, what is the point in the move that everyone says creates more value? I mean, this this deal is locked up for a little while. I believe it's through 2034. What's the point of creating more value right now if you're not going to see any of it? So let's look at what we got here. The three most likely permanent rivalry games, if the league does go with the 3-6 format, would be these. That 3-6 is funny. I, I just thought about the 3-6 Mafia. That's awesome. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I will always be Memphis, my friends. Uh, I'm going to read these off quickly. Florida would play Georgia, South Carolina, and LSU. Now, these are hypothetical whatever. You know, toss your comments on on who you think the rivals should be. Uh, but Florida would play Georgia, South Carolina, and LSU. Georgia would play Florida, South Carolina, and Auburn. South Carolina would play Georgia, Florida, and Kentucky. Kentucky would play Tennessee, South Carolina, and Vanderbilt. Tennessee would play Vanderbilt, Alabama, and Kentucky. Uh, Vandy would play Tennessee, Ole Miss, Kentucky. Alabama would play Auburn, Tennessee, and Mississippi State. Uh, Auburn would play Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi State. Ole Miss would play Mississippi State, LSU, and Vandy. Mississippi State would play Ole Miss, Auburn, and Alabama. LSU would play A&M, Ole Miss, and Florida. Texas would play A&M, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. A&M would play Texas, LSU, and Missouri. Oklahoma would play Texas, Arkansas, and Missouri. Arkansas would play Texas, Oklahoma, and Missouri. Missouri would play Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Texas A&M. Now, the most likely permanent rivalries for the 1-7 model would be this. And this is a lot easier to read off, by the way. Uh, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Auburn, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Oklahoma, Texas, A&M, LSU, Arkansas, Missouri, South Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, Vanderbilt. And so, yes, there are a lot of people that would be upset if we were to lose Alabama versus Tennessee or Texas versus Texas A&M or Auburn versus Georgia annually. But there is a workaround for this. When the ACC expanded in 2005 and in 2013, North Carolina and Wake Forest were placed in opposite divisions and given different protected rivalries, even though they had played annually from 1888 through 2007. Now, sands a few years during the World Wars and whatnot. Uh, they had last played each other in 2015, but they went ahead and scheduled non-conference games against each other in 2019 and in 2020. Now, those ended up being played in 2021. Uh... If the excuse me, I guess that one game in 2020 ended up being played in 2021. Excuse me, uh, but if the SEC decides on a one-seven format, the easy solution would be for Alabama and Tennessee, or LSU and Auburn, or Georgia and whoever in the conference that wants to play each other, schedule a non-conference game in the years where you're not scheduled to play each other. Like it, it wouldn't count against the record. It would keep some schools happy that don't have multiple traditional rivals. Uh, that you know they feel like they have to keep protected. I seriously doubt Vanderbilt is going to be upset if they are not scheduled to play Georgia every year. Ole Miss might be okay with dodging Alabama every couple of years. There are ways to make this work uh, either way, but that's the solution to this whole thing. You go 1-7, and then those that want to keep those rivals, sick them. That's the one that you can do. Alabama-Tennessee, like, it, why not just schedule each other in the years that you're not scheduled to play? Like, yes, you will bump up to nine games, but if you were already going to do that anyway, well, you could just have one of these games that actually doesn't count against your conference record. That's my solution to this, is fix it by actually scheduling non-conference games. That's the easiest way to do this thing. All right, we got some more stuff to discuss. 
more things on the docket. Um, going to write down the time, of course. <laughs> so uh, the question now is, what is next for the SEC? Is there finally stability in the two biggest conferences now that Kevin Warren has moved back to the NFL and Oklahoma and Texas are confirmed to join the SEC in 2024? Greg Sankey joined uh, WJOX in Birmingham Friday morning. I believe he was talking to uh, Cole Kublick and uh, Greg McElroy. Uh, he was asked if expansion was over, and he responded with this. Uh, that's one of those that I don't know answers. I have a responsibility, I think, in two ways, he explained. Uh, one, not to be a continuing source of instability for others. And we've been clear that our focus is on moving towards 16, making sure that the Southeastern Conference operates well and builds upon our strength. At the same time, I have to be attentive to what is happening around me. So basically, the SEC is set for now, but I guess, like, never say never, I guess? He went on to say that there's a lot of speculation about what might happen in the western part of our country's college athletic conferences, uh, but that doesn't seem to have a direct impact on us. So what he's saying there is the Big 12 stuff isn't necessarily going to matter. There's nobody in the Big 12 or the Pac-12 right now that would necessarily add value to the SEC. Uh, he did say, I have to be mindful, I have to be attentive, but I also want us to be thoughtful and not be the center of any instability about talking about a move to a particular number, and we've seen some of that in recent years. Our focus is on being as effective and strong as possible now that we're moving to 16. So, one, that's kind of a shot at the Big Ten, right? Because you heard Kevin Warren bring up 20 a couple of times. Uh, there was no reason to do that. It, it immediately makes everybody panic. Uh, but the other part of this is, you know, why won't he completely shut down talks of expansion uh, and the answer to that is because the ACC is in a bit of a weakened position and if enough ACC schools threaten their own current grant of rights there are schools that if they join the Big Ten could certainly weaken the SEC like take for example North Carolina or Virginia those are schools that the SEC has had their eyes on for a while both because of academics the size of their states and more the brands are valuable on multiple levels here uh, but there's also Clemson, Florida State, possibly Miami. If the Big Ten were to get a presence in the SEC footprint, that could cause damage. Uh, while the current SEC schools may not be interested in bringing in schools in states where there's already a presence, eh, things do change going forward. So you're not looking so much for a footprint as far as TV viewership or TV households. Uh, you're looking for the biggest brands for subscribers, Right. Who is going to bring the most interest? Who's going to bring the biggest games, the biggest fan bases? That's a pretty important part of this. So I, I'm curious where this is going to go going forward because uh, if if the Big Ten starts to make moves towards the ACC and the ACC decides to split up that grant of rights, which it would take at least eight of the 14 schools to be able to split that thing, at that point, you may not be left with much of a choice if we saw it with Oklahoma and Texas. If the SEC did not take them, they were going to go to the Big Ten. So at that point, the SEC has to move. You don't want to be a source of instability, so you're not going to go out actively seeking like the Big 12 is doing. But yeah, you're, you're there, and you will listen if things happen to go south, right? Uh, let's let's move along. We got uh, one more thing to hit on before we hit a break. With Oklahoma and Texas now leaving the Big Twelve a year early, 
Uh, what is next for that conference? Commissioner Britt Yormark stated at Big 12 Conference Media Days back in July of 2022 that the league is, quote, open for business. Now, in December, he was quoted as saying, we'd love to get into that fourth time zone, and we will at some point. It's a very definitive statement. Uh, Dennis Dodd has a story up over at CBSSports.com, which says that now that Texas A&M and Oklahoma are leaving early, the conference now plans to aggressively pursue expansion in some form. Sources tell CBS Sports. Uh, Dodd's latest story uh, details everything perfectly. Quoting from the article, he said, Your mark seeks game inventory in the Pacific time zone, which would allow the once Midwest-based league to stretch from coast to coast. More importantly, it would give the Big 12 a presence in all four primary television windows, noon, 3.30, primetime, and late night, based on the Eastern time zone. Now, Your mark was asked last August what his ideal number of members for the Big 12 might be, to which he responded, I haven't really looked at the numbers. As I said during Media Day, it can't be dilutive. It needs to be additive, and it comes down to making sure that we're identifying the right strategic partners from a school perspective and those that bring value to our conference. He said, we'll be at 12 in a couple of years when you add the four, you know, BYU, UCF, Cincy, and Houston, and when Texas and Oklahoma actually leave. Uh, Now, here's the biggest part of this. He said, if it's 16 or 20, I can't tell you, but we just have to make sure that whatever number it is, it's all about the value equation. And he's 100% right about this, by the way. Uh, at, at certain points, you get to uh, the point of diminishing returns, as we have talked about on the show multiple times. Uh, but let's, let's move on. All the talk has been about the Big 12 adding the four corner schools from the Pac-12. We know Utah makes sense to pair with BYU, of course. Uh, Colorado makes sense geographically along with Arizona and Arizona State. But the thing that all of those schools have in common is they are all located in the mountain time zone. Now, notice up there, again, that your mark said he couldn't tell you if the ideal number of Big 12 members is 16 or 20. If he brings in the four corner schools to the Big 12, that makes 16. But it didn't get the Big 12 into the Pacific time zone. The two biggest fish in the uh, Pacific time zone, of course, are Oregon and Washington. Now, all of this revolves around the potential Pac-12 television contract with ESPN and Amazon that we spoke about at length last week. Uh, for a quick refresher, an AD inside the Pac-12 told The Athletic last week that no deal had been reached because the contract offers have not been good, uh, which is why the Pac-12 commissioner, George Klaufkoff, has been visiting San Diego State and SMU recently, looking into expansion, adding inventory for potential partners. Uh, the basic thing to know about this is that Pac-12 schools really didn't want to expand because Klaufkoff overpromised what each school could make by staying at 10, and now he's having to hunt for additional inventory just to get something close to what the Big 12 has already secured. Uh, The longer the Pac-12 goes without a media rights deal, the more nervous the current schools could get about the league's stability. So, back to Big 12 potential expansion. If the Big 12 takes the four-corner schools because they prefer stability and security over whatever mess they're currently in in the Pac-12, then that leaves only six schools in the Pac-12. SMU and San Diego State don't join the Pac-12 if there's only six schools, which means... Oregon and Washington will be the biggest fish left with no TV deal and no real conference home. If they decide that the Big 12 is their best option and there's no offer from the Big 10 or, you know, those two schools put the Big 12, I guess, at 18 schools at that point, if those states legislatively require Washington State and Oregon State to be paired up with their sister schools, then who knows whether the Big 12 will offer for all four to join. But if they do, that means that they would take eight Pac-12 schools that would bump their total number of schools up to 20. 
which, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the numbers that Yormark mentioned. Now, Yormark saw this as a possibility when he took over as Big 12 commissioner. Uh, that does leave out Cal and Stanford, and as I and other media guys have mentioned since last August, who knows how long those two, uh, those two schools are going to want to be playing big-time college football. They could end up joining, I guess, the Mountain West. Uh, and to think about it, if there's no legislative action tying Washington State and Oregon State uh, in with, of course, Oregon and Washington, I guess the Mountain West could add those four new schools and bump their membership back up to 16. There is the issue of distance, right? Would it make more sense for Pac-12 schools to be, you know, making five or six million dollars less per school along with a decline in exposure in order to stay in the same geographical footprint? Like a trip from Salt Lake City to Seattle is 400 miles less than a trip to Fort Worth. Not that big of a deal when you're taking a plane and whatnot, but a trip from Salt Lake City to Orlando, Florida is 2,300 miles. I mean, it's nearly three times the distance. If you're going from Tempe, Arizona to Morgantown, that's over 2,000 miles. Now, there are several trips that are just absurd that would have to be taken regularly. Remember, this is not just about football. Like, this is basketball, baseball, volleyball, track, etc. Teams, uh, all of those teams would become a part of this as well. So, for some of these Pac-12 members, the Big 12 is really an absolute last resort. But right now... Like, things do look a bit dire for the Pac-12. Um, and, I mean, we're talking about the Big 12 here, right? It, they are, quote, aggressively pursuing expansion. Like, it, you can imagine Oregon versus Oklahoma State as a conference game. Washington versus TCU. Utah versus BYU being a Power 5 uh, conference game, or just a Power conference game. We legitimately could have a conference game between Oregon State and Cincinnati. Like, Beavers and Bearcats. That, that could be incredibly interesting as we move forward. Uh, and I'm beginning to feel like the Big 12 getting Pac-12 schools in expansion is more likely than not at this point. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. So toss them into the comments down there. On the other side, we're going to talk about ACC unequal revenue sharing, Notre Dame's OC target, uh, Brian Kelly divorce mess, Cam Rising, and a whole lot more. Let's check out some things you should know about. Every Tuesday and Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, expert game analysis only on the BetUS TV College football channel. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever's your favorite podcast app. And if your app allows it, leave a five-star written review. Visit the Winning Cures Everything web store to get all kinds of football shirts, hats, hoodies, mugs, and more. Visit winningcureseverything.com slash store to see what all we've added. And now, back to the show. All right. We are going to talk Notre Dame. A few days ago, we did have, uh, well, this was February 10th, to be exact. Heather Dinich at ESPN reported that a source told her that Utah's Andy Ludwig is the leading candidate for the Notre Dame offensive coordinator position. Uh, she wrote that Ludwig arrived on campus Friday afternoon and that he has not been offered the job or accepted it yet, but multiple sources have indicated to her that it is a strong possibility. Now, of course, Notre Dame is looking for a new OC because Tommy Reese left to become Alabama's new offensive coordinator. Uh, apparently, Freeman is looking for a, quote, proven play caller who can continue to run a pro-style offense and fit seamlessly with the current staff. Now, Ludwig has been... Uh, an OC at Oregon and Vanderbilt before Utah. 
he also had coaching stints at Wisconsin, San Diego State, and at Cal. Um, but here's the deal. We're at February 13th now, three days after this report, and there has been no news out of South Bend. But if you read that report from Dennett a little bit further, there's something interesting in there. It says, while the Irish want to keep their offensive philosophy the same and continue to highlight their tight ends, sources said Freeman is looking for a coordinator who will also add creativity to the formations. With spring practices about a month away, there is an emphasis on finding a candidate who can quickly install a system and teach it to the staff and players. So, let me get this right. They are looking for an OC to come in and keep the same staff and keep the Notre Dame offensive philosophy the same. Now, the question here is how much control is Marcus Freeman willing to give up uh, to his next offensive coordinator? Like, it's one thing for an OC like Ludwig to come in and hear that from Nick Saban. It's another to hear it from a second-year head coach that is 21 years younger than him. Ludwig is 58, and Marcus Freeman is 37. Now, football is football, and Ludwig's uh, offensive philosophy seems to be a splitting image of what Notre Dame has done and wants to continue doing. But there's that element of control that intrigues me. Uh, it, It makes me question things about what we saw before. Like, did Tommy Reese leave for Alabama simply because it was a better job? Or was there something else in that coaching dynamic that might not have been quite right? Now, obviously, this is speculation, uh, but the fact that Ludwig hasn't been named OC yet, like that certainly has me curious about things. So we'll, we'll see what happens in South Bend. Uh, and by the way, uh, speaking of Notre Dame, Tommy Reese is already making his impact felt in Tuscaloosa. Uh, Alabama is expected to hire John McNulty as an offensive analyst. McNulty was the OC at Rutgers in 2018 after nine seasons in the NFL, uh, and he went from Rutgers to Notre Dame as tight ends coach, while Reese was the quarterback coach and then the OC. Uh, McNulty spent last season as Boston College's OC, so pretty good get for the Tide on that one. Let's talk about Brian Kelly. Last Thursday night, WBRZ, which is a TV station in Baton Rouge, reported that Brian Kelly, the LSU head coach, had filed for divorce. Now, there must be something in the water down there. We saw what happened with, with Coach O, right? They said that Kelly made the filing on Monday and that he and his wife of 28 years would physically separate on Thursday. And then something funny happened. All three of the kids posted on social media that the report was not correct. The daughter posted a picture of her mom and dad together at a restaurant in Baton Rouge with a caption, Things look fine to me, which led to a whole lot of people bashing the news station. Now, your first thought here has got to be like, holy crap, there's another Brian Kelly in Baton Rouge that filed for divorce. Like, what are the odds of that? Uh, but WBRZ then produced the divorce filing, which listed the coach's address and his wife's name. Like, this is weird, right? It, maybe it's not so weird, apparently. A source inside the LSU Athletic Department reached out to the news station and informed them that a divorce petition actually was filed this week, but that Brian Kelly and his wife have reconciled and will seek to have the case withdrawn from the courts. So, (laughs) this is a great thing for all those that believe in true love and in not getting divorced, etc. Sticking through a relationship, you, you get the point. But my first thought after everything was this, like, what in the world happened? to make that man so mad that he legit went and filed for divorce. Like, it, my wife and I have been through some stuff, let, let me tell you, but there has never been a world 
where I have been so mad that I called up a lawyer and went through an actual legal process. Like, you can have papers drawn up without filing anything. Now, now, maybe this is nothing at all, and they just agreed that things weren't working, but then they decided to give it another shot. I, I guess that stuff happens all the time. But I'm kind of left with more questions, right? Like, it, and we're never going to get answers to these. Like, I guess, like, cheers to, to Coach Brian Kelly and to his wife for making it work. Like, I, there ain't nothing in this world like love, I suppose. But, whew, that was a weird one towards the end of last week. Really, really, really weird one. A uh, quick reminder... If you would, please like the video and subscribe if you've not already. The show is free, so I'm not asking for a whole lot here. Just, you know, click the like button. looks like this. Uh, hit that subscribe button, and if you feel so inclined, tell your friends about it. Share it out. I would certainly appreciate that. You can also uh, follow all of my latest musings over on Twitter, at GaryWCE is the name there. Um, hey, let's, let's try something else. Uh, toss in some other college football shows that you listen to in the comments. Like, I'm always curious to hear new stuff, so... Go ahead and toss them in there for me. I would uh, I would certainly appreciate that. Let's talk about the ACC. We got uh, we got some things to discuss here. Now we spoke about the ACC earlier and their weakened position, as I put it, relative to the SEC and the Big Ten, and the possibility that schools could try to leave the conference eventually to join one of the two bigger conferences. Well, the ACC is holding winter meetings in Charlotte this week. And the new, uh, excuse me, new Clemson AD, Graham Neff, was quoted as saying, we'll have a lot of discussions on how to close the revenue gap in the ACC. Apparently, one of the topics that's at the front end of that conversation, according to a story over at theclemsoninsider.com, could be unequal distribution of revenue. Yes, that is the thing that is widely credited with destroying the Southwest slash Big 8 slash Big 12 conference. Right? Like, I, I'm sure people remember the Longhorn Network and the fact that Texas A&M is now in the SEC. But e either way, uh, former ACC Commissioner John Swafford, who was the ACC head from 1997 through 2021, he made the same mistake that Scottie Pippen did years ago. He chose long-term security without understanding market changes. His deal with the ESPN, while it does lock in all of the ACC members together in a grant of rights, it goes all the way through 2036. Now, that's still 13 years away, and that deal is already considered a bargain for ESPN, much the same way that the CBS deal for the uh, SEC Game of the Week was viewed for years and years, uh, which ultimately ended the relationship between the conference and the network, but either way. So for the ACC, who is projected to fall in the neighborhood of $50 million annually behind SEC and Big Ten schools, this has become a giant problem. And so the Clemson AD, Neff, said that everybody has their hat or their polo on for different schools based on where you invest, what your priorities are, and probably what your appetite is. But everybody is at the table and understands it's time to order. So I've been pleased and optimistic about the general understanding within the league that, hey, this is something we really need to look at, and that's not easy. I emphasize that because I don't take it lightly, because forever the ACC, let alone all other conferences that I'm aware of, has been equal revenue share. So the notion of kind of jumping the ditch or really considering rolling up the sleeves on, hey, we need to look at this differently, I think there's a really good understanding of that. Now, I'll tell you, that's easy to say for the AD of one of the premier athletic programs in that conference. Clemson has been awesome under Dabo Sweeney, and the Tigers football program, which 
is the front porch of most universities, is responsible for all but one of the ACC's college football playoff appearances, the other one being James Winston and Florida State back in 2014. Uh, but the newly expanded 12-team CFP is certainly going to help raise the financial floor for ACC members, but where distribution used to be equal, uh, per that story at the Clemson Insider, Neff said he believes there's an understanding around the league that distribution can be constructed in a way that incentivizes future success, which I suppose makes sense, right? The goal for the ACC is to not let programs like Clemson, Florida State, and Miami get upset with the revenue distribution to the point that they feel like they have to move to another conference in order to keep up with their uh, athletic brand uh, peers. But you, you can't go about it by just handing Clemson more money because they're Clemson, right? Neff said, uh, this is a specific quote that I, I'm curious about, he said it should be based on performance. Football, success, postseason, CFP. And I'll tell you, if he had left it off right there, that would have been awesome. Would have been great. But then he added this little bit. He said, how you help drive television viewership and metrics, things like that. Go look at Miami's TV ratings for this year. Cristobal's first team was putrid. But because of their brand name and because of their following, they were still one of the most watched teams in the ACC this past season, at least according to Nielsen ratings when they played on a network that was actually measured. They had a whole lot of RSNs and ACC network, et cetera, right? Neff tried to use Wake Forest as an example because they've won 19 games in the past two seasons, which is awesome. He said they're a different type of school, but how they've performed recently, they've invested. They've invested in coach retention and facilities so they're a great example of investment breed success, which in theory would breed distribution. That's kind of the sequence of which we discuss. Now, when I look at this, and he talks about Wake Forest, but I see a team like Washington State who went 10-2 and in 2018, but ended up having to play in the Alamo Bowl as opposed to a New Year's Six Bowl due to television contracts. The Sugar Bowl was forced to take Texas, who went 9-4 and in that regular season, and was actually ranked lower than Washington State due to a contract pitting the Big 12 against the SEC. The Orange Bowl in 2019 had to put number 24 Virginia against Florida in their bowl game. Wake Forest went 10-3 in 2021, and they had to play Rutgers in the 11 a.m. Gator Bowl on New Year's Eve. <laughs> it's just, I understand that they were supposed to play Texas A&M, but it's still ridiculous. The payout for the Gator Bowl is less than the ReliaQuest, the Music City, the Alamo, the Cheez-It, the Texas, and the Holiday Bowls, along with the CFP and all the New Year's Six Bowls. Clemson and NC State finished behind Wake Forest in the ACC standings that season. Wake Forest had more overall wins than both teams, and Wake went to the Gator Bowl with a payout of $5.35 million, while Clemson went to the Cheez-It Bowl with a payout of $6.071 million, and NC State went to the Holiday Bowl with a payout of $6.532 million. Yes, I suppose winning can help you earn more distribution, but we're not going to kid ourselves here at Winning Cures Everything. An unequal revenue distribution system will not be a meritocracy, especially when you see suggestions like these tossed in for TV metrics and viewership, etc. The bowl system puts teams that get the most eyeballs against other teams that get the most eyeballs, and they will be paid accordingly. Like I'm, I'm personally curious how this is going to work because... Yes, the ACC is going to have to find a way to keep their big brands happy, but let's not kid ourselves into believing this argument from Clemson's AD about unequal revenue distribution 
and how teams like Wake Forest can work their way up into the college football world. Like it, his job is to sell it for sure, so he can earn as much money for his athletic department as possible. But anyway, this thing gets sliced. It, it's it's not going to be any way the thing gets sliced that's not right down the middle. Like there's always going to be advantages for the bigger brands. So hearing that they are even discussing this lets me know that this is the beginning of the end of the ACC because we have been down this road before. We have seen it. Maybe they can find a way to make it work, but I ain't buying it. I ain't buying it at all. All right, we got a couple more things that we got to hit on. Uh, some quick news. Let's talk Cam Rising for a minute. Uh, if you're like me, you were surprised when you learned that Cam Rising is coming back to Utah for another season. Not because of his NFL draft stock, because, I mean, it, it really wasn't that high, but because he was a member of Texas's 2018 signing class before transferring to Utah. Like, it's just felt like a really long time that he's been around. Uh, but when you really do the math, I mean, it makes sense, right? He redshirted in 2018. He didn't play in 2019. Barely touched the field in 2020. Took over as a starter at Utah a couple of games into 2021. Uh, he was a stud this past year. So he has now been in college for five years, and then he gets the extra COVID season, which is what really jacked me up on the timeline. Uh, anyway, Rising informed Bill Riley at ESPN 700 in Salt Lake City that he tore an ACL in the Rose Bowl and underwent surgery in January. Uh, he told Riley, I have to make sure I'm doing everything I can to make sure I'm ready for fall camp and then ready to go when the season comes around. Uh, now, as Brandon Marcello tweeted out, Rising decided to return to Utah rather than go to the NFL a week or two before the Rose Bowl. So he decided before the injury took place. Um, here's hoping that Rising is healed up and, and ready to go by September. I mean, we, we have seen people recover from torn ACLs within like six to eight months before, but everybody's timetable is different. Like, we're, we're going to see what happens with Cam here, but if he tore that thing in January and went ahead and had surgery, uh, I mean, you're looking at what? September would be nine, right at nine, or I guess that'd be eight full months. So maybe he can get back at the end of July in time for fall camp. Who knows? But this is going to be interesting. To, I'm, I'm curious on the timeline here. Curious on the timeline. Joe Moorhead. You guys know I like old Joe. Joe Moorhead has agreed to a contract extension at Akron through 2027, according to ESPN's Pete Thamel. Now, I suppose he can thank Notre Dame, Alabama, and an unnamed NFL team for that, as all of them have reached out to gauge Moorhead's interest in their open offensive coordinator positions this cycle. Now, he's also getting a retention bonus structure that puts his salary in the middle of the MAC, which isn't exactly common for Akron. Um, and to be honest, I, I don't think Akron really had to do this. Like, Moorhead wants to be a head coach. This is plain and simple. Most people don't leave a successful job as the OC at Oregon for anything less than an AAC or a Mountain West coaching job, uh, which can then be turned into a P5 job. But Joe Moe thought he could win at Akron, and he wanted to be a head coach. And I, look, I'll tell you this, from Akron's side, it's always smart to make people feel appreciated. So what the Zips did was, by all accounts, incredibly smart. But the truth here is I don't see Moorhead leaving Akron unless it's for another head coaching job. And he's, he's kind of the type of guy that could pull a, a Frank Solich and just be there until he can't coach anymore. He doesn't need the attention, and it's one of the many reasons that you can count me as a Joe Mo fan. We saw what happened in Starkville. He doesn't need all that. He just wants to coach ball. He's already made his money. Joe, Joe Moorhead doing this thing. We'll, uh, we'll close out with this story here. Antonio Alfano 
was ranked the number one recruit in the 2019 class. He signed with Alabama. He went through spring, and then he left the Tide early in the 2019 season, announcing his decision to transfer in October of that year. His grandmother, with whom he was incredibly close, uh, passed away that November. Alfano ended up training, excuse me, transferring to Colorado uh, to play for Mel Tucker, who left uh, for Michigan State a couple months after he enrolled. After that, he got suspended and reinstated by Coach Carl Durrell. He started experiencing seizures. He was diagnosed with epilepsy and then was not cleared to practice or play in the 2020 season. Uh, this kid really went through quite a bit. Uh, he explained a lot of it on his Twitter account. You should go give him a follow. Uh, but he transferred to Independence Kansas Community College, where he went through spring practice but didn't end up playing in the fall of last year. Well, Antonio is now uh, getting another opportunity at Lackawanna College in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, the campus is two hours from where he graduated high school in New Jersey. Uh, his coach, Mark Duda, uh, told 247 Sports that he has a good attitude going through the workouts, and he's a heck of an athlete. We're trying to help him fulfill his goals, and I'm looking forward to coaching him. Now, there's no real drama with this story or anything like that, but, you know, sometimes we in the college football space, uh, we forget about the, you know, the ones that fall through the cracks, right? While we focus on the sport overall, sometimes people, uh, players, are just pawns in this gigantic machine. Alfano was supposed to be awesome, uh, and then he had a whole lot happen that got in the way of that. Like, football players are human, and this is awesome that he's getting another chance to play. I will happily be keeping up with how he does this fall. This is awesome to me. It is awesome to me. All right, that is going to wrap things up for this edition of Winning Cures Everything. Again, if you have not already, click that like button for me. Make sure that you are subscribed to the channel. And, of course, jump in the comments. I want to know your thoughts on this thing. Uh, you know, all the different things that we discussed today. Make sure that you get signed up at BetUS. And, of course, subscribe to and review the podcast. As always, if there is something that you want me to talk about on the show, either toss it in the comments or you can feel free to hit me up at GaryWCE on Twitter or you can email me, Gary at winningcureseverything.com. I think that's going to do it. I don't think there's any more notes around. So, huh. until next time, take care of yourself. Take care of each other. God bless college football. And hopefully, hopefully, all of your tickets cash this week. Thanks for listening to Winning Cures Everything. Make sure and subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. And make sure to leave a nice five-star review. You can follow Gary on Twitter, at GaryWCE. And the show is at Winning Cures. Be sure to check out the merch in our web store and share the show. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.